Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Donald Trump says the prosecutor investigating him in New York is doing the work of the devil. Yes, he, he really said that. The lead starts right now. Trump attacks on another level, belittling the importance of keeping protests peaceful as New York prosecutors weigh an indictment. And the DA leading the hush money case sends a letter to Republican leaders with a few choice words of his own. Also, protests taking over parts of Paris, setting fires, disrupting train and airline travel. The uproar over the Macron government's plan to raise the retirement age. Plus, in the, new, in the U.S., feared news confirmed near collisions on airport runways are actually happening more. In fact, they've doubled this year. But why? Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with our politics lead. The New York grand jury is in session. The district attorney is really steamed. And Donald Trump is back to screaming in all caps on social media. The legal headlines are aplenty today, starting in Manhattan, where the grand jury hearing the hush money case involving Stormy Daniels is meeting today. Sources say, however, they are not discussing Donald Trump, the grand jury, which means the decision on whether to charge the former president in the Stormy Daniels hush money case, that decision slides into next week. Meanwhile, the man prosecuting the case, District Attorney Alvin Bragg, is unleashing on House Republicans who have been taking steps to investigate the team investigating Donald Trump. Bragg sent a letter today claiming that the GOP leaders only got involved, quote, after Donald Trump created a false expectation that he would be arrested the next day and his lawyers reportedly urged you to intervene, unquote. We should note that day that Trump was supposed to be arrested, according to Trump, that day was Tuesday and that day came and went without an arrest or indictment. In a separate case, the federal investigation into the activities surrounding January 6th, today lawyers for Trump and his former vice president, Mike Pence, they are all back in court. They're trying to block a subpoena for Pence's testimony about his conversations with Trump around the time of the Capitol insurrection. We're going to break down every one of these developments for you. We're going to start with CNN's Kara Scannell in Manhattan, outside the courthouse. Kara, what do we know about the timeline moving forward and the deliberations happening behind the scenes right now? Well, Jake, we know that the grand jury hearing testimony involving the investigation into former President Trump's alleged role in the hush money scheme will be back on Monday, and they will likely hear from another witness. Sources tell us that prosecutors are weighing bringing back at least 
one witness, possibly more. Other sources say it's possible they could even bring back Michael Cohen, who already testified for two days last week before the grand jury. And this comes as Bragg is weighing this big decision of whether to bring the first charges against a former president. And it comes as the office, sources tell us, are regrouping following the weeks of testimony and the testimony on Monday when they heard from Michael Cohen's former lawyer at the request of the Trump team. Now, as you said, this comes as the DA's office was also pushing back on the House Republicans who want Alvin Bragg to come and testify before their committees. And Bragg's office saying that that is unprecedented interference by a federal body into a local prosecution. Uh, Bragg's office also saying essentially to them, just back off. Jake? And Kara, in a lengthy all-caps rant on his social media, Truth Social, today, Donald Trump wrote, quote, Everybody knows that I'm 100% innocent, including Bragg, but he doesn't care. He is just carrying out the plans of the radical left lunatics. Our country is being destroyed as they tell us to be peaceful, unquote. Uh, I know a lot of law enforcement not happy about the belittling of the importance of being peaceful, have there been crowds gathering outside the court where you are? And, and what can you tell us about security preparations? Well, Jake, on Tuesday, the day that the former president said he expected to be arrested, we definitely saw an increase in crowds here. Most of the media, though, to be quite frankly, uh, there were some pockets of individuals, some of them satirists who were showing up and looking to get on camera. But it really hasn't drawn the type of crowds that Trump has been calling for. I mean, there is an increased security presence. They have installed security cameras around here, around the perimeter of the courthouse. And they've placed barricades around in case there does become a crowd control issue. But otherwise, it's been fairly calm outside the courthouse, with most of us wondering what is going on inside, behind us, in the grand jury room. Jake? All right, Kara Scannell in New York for us. Thanks so much. Now to the federal investigation into Donald Trump's actions around January 6th. CNN's Caitlin Palance is uh, in uh, in D.C., uh, where Trump and Pence lawyers were earlier this afternoon. Uh, Caitlin, what do we know about the arguments uh, that those lawyers have been making? Well, these arguments are coming after Mike Pence was subpoenaed to testify in the January 6th investigation. Remember, this is a separate criminal investigation than the others we've been talking about. It's the January 6th investigation being led by the special counsel's office here in Washington. And what we know now, Evan Presk and I could confirm that there has been fighting over two fronts here. Donald Trump's team wants to limit what Mike Pence is willing to say to the grand jury by claiming executive privilege, basically trying to block him from divulging what might have happened in conversations between the two, the president and the vice president. Pence's team is also uh, preparing to fight on the speech or debate clause side of things. The speech or debate clause, it's in the Constitution. And what it does is it basically allows Congress to have a lot of protections. What they're going to be arguing is that Mike Pence should have those protections because on January 6th, he was an officer of the Senate. So that is what is going to be argued in these hearings. It may have been argued today in court. All of the lawyers, a whole crowd of them for Pence, Trump, and the January 6th investigation. They were all at the courthouse before Judge Jeb Bovesberg, the new chief judge in D.C. Uh, but we don't know exactly what happened in that hearing because it was under seal, like so many of these things. And, Kayla, one of the lawyers defending Trump in federal court today, he has to testify in a different case tomorrow. That's correct. As far as as we know right now, Evan Corcoran, one of the defense attorneys for Donald Trump and really the primary defense attorney for Donald Trump in the Mar-a-Lago documents investigation, 
what happened with the classified records kept at Mar-a-Lago after Trump left the presidency. He was ordered by the federal appeals court in Washington to testify to the grand jury investigating that. That is a major step forward in the special counsel investigation looking at that issue. He also uh, was ordered to turn over documents to the grand jury investigation. And this is the type of information that prosecutors believe uh, could really potentially make or break their, their case. They, we know that they have argued to the judges that they have been before that these things uh, that he has, that he knows, and the notes that he has could show Donald Trump himself trying to commit a crime. Jake? All right, Caitlin Plants, thanks so much. Let's discuss all of this with Emily Honig. He's a former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. Also with us, Jennifer Rogers, who's a former federal prosecutor. Thanks to both of you for being here. Ellie, let me start with you. Let's start with the January 6th case in court today. So Vice President Pence's team is expected to say that, that he's protected by the speech and debate clause of the Constitution because so many of his activities uh, related to his being uh, president of the Senate on January 6th. Trump's lawyers are expected to claim executive privilege that uh, because he's the president, he's allowed to have advice from close advisors that won't be forced uh, out into the public. Do either of them have a strong case? Well, Jake, I think Mike Pence has a reasonable chance of at least partial success. I think Donald Trump does not in this instance. So if Mike Pence is questioned about his activities as the presiding, uh, as the president of the Senate, as part of his job as vice president, I think he does have a reasonable claim to protection under the speech and debate clause. It's never been an argument that's been squarely decided by the courts, but I think there's a reasonable basis for it. On Donald Trump's end, he's got two big problems with trying to claim executive privilege. First of all, this is a criminal grand jury subpoena, which usually prevails over claims of executive privilege. And second of all, Donald Trump is a former president. It's not impossible for a former president to claim executive privilege, but it's definitely an uphill climb. Jennifer, how do you see this uh, shaking out in terms of what arguments uh, are made and, and whether Trump or Pence have to testify? Uh, I, I agree with Ellie that, that Pence will have to testify over Trump's claim of executive privilege, but that the question of speech and debate clause is much murkier. The other thing is that it's going to take time. I mean, unlike the executive privilege argument, this speech and debate clause issue has never been litigated before. So I think we can expect appeal upon appeal, probably all the way up to the Supreme Court before we know how they'll parse out exactly what Pence has to testify to and what can maybe be held back. Okay, I know there are a lot of cases, and so I just want to try to be as clear as possible. Um, so that's the January 6th case. Now let's go back up to Manhattan with the Hush Money case involving uh, porn star and director uh, Stormy Daniels. Um, today, Ali, Trump appeared to issue another call to action to his followers. He posted, our country is being destroyed, as they tell us, to be peaceful. I know some law enforcement officials upset that Trump was belittling the idea of, of being peaceful. You worked right by this courthouse for more than eight years. If protests turn violent and do break out, what is it like in that area? What would you expect to happen? Jake, my advice to anyone who's thinking about going down there and causing violence or mayhem is don't even try it. There may be no more heavily fortified few acres in the country than right down there. If you were to go to that middle of that plaza and sort of look around from your right to your left, you would start with one police plaza, the headquarters of the NYPD. Then you would come to the federal building where Jennifer Rogers and I used to work, which is backed by a federal prison. Then you would come to the state courthouse, which also has the old state prison called the Tombs behind that. And then you would come to 26 Federal Plaza, which is the regional headquarters for the FBI and the Department 
equivalent of homeland security. I also think anyone who's thinking of going down there and causing trouble ought to take heed of the lesson of what happened to the people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th, many of whom are now serving long prison sentences. And Jennifer, today Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg sent a letter to Republican lawmakers attacking the House GOP investigation into his office. He called it unprecedented. Um, Republicans have been trying to, to paint Alvin Bragg's case and investigation as politically uh, motivated. Do you worry that Bragg's strongly worded letter might make this look even more political? I don't think so, Jake, because actually, while he was very strong on the point of this is unprecedented, there is no basis for Congress to try to interfere in a local prosecution and you have no oversight over my office. Um, all of that was very strong, but I thought he struck the right tone. He said, listen, we can have a meet and confer to the extent that you think you have legislative reasons to ask me questions. I'm happy to hear those. They also offered up some information about federal funding of the office. So, you know, Alvin Bragg is the adult in the room here. And I think that came across in the letter. So I think it struck the right tone. Now we'll see what uh, Jim Jordan and them do with that. Uh, but it was a good letter. Ellie, do you think Bragg could refuse to participate in Congress's investigation? What would happen if he does? I think he could, and I think he should, Jake. Look, Congress certainly has the right to try to get testimony to subpoena anyone they want. But anyone who gets a subpoena from Congress also has the right to challenge that. And if we want a recent example, let's remember the January 6th committee. They served subpoenas on several Republican members of Congress, including Kevin McCarthy and Jim Jordan, who ignored those subpoenas. Others challenged them in court. And I think Alvin Bragg is doing the right thing here. If he says to the federal U.S. Congress, what jurisdiction, what legitimate legislative purpose do you have in overseeing me, a local elected county district attorney. So I've certainly raised questions about the potential merits of a case here, but I absolutely think Alvin Bragg is doing the right thing in standing up for the independence and integrity of his office. Jennifer, do you think there's any chance Bragg's office is reconsidering uh, the, I, the decision to pursue an indictment? I mean, I have no idea. Um, of course, none of us has any idea what's happening behind closed doors. I'm glad that maybe he's taking a beat to think once again about this. Alvin is a very thoughtful, measured person. So I would expect him to have thought long and hard about it before pulling the trigger. Uh, we just don't know. We just don't know. We'll have to wait and see. It'll be very interesting, I think, to see if another witness does go into the grand jury, which might give us a clue about you know, what they're thinking. Uh, so we'll know more next week. Jennifer Rogers, Ellie Honig, thanks to both of you. In a nation with a mass shooting seemingly every day, a tweet drawing backlash compares gun rights to the Holocaust. Judge it for yourself. That's coming up. Plus, what could be a precedent-setting case? An accused school shooter facing charges, and now a court says his parents, too, should face trial. But first, the uproar in Paris. Protests in the streets set off by a move by the French government. We'll take you there next. In our world lead, uh, these images out of Paris uh, coming in just moments ago. It looks like uh, this could be a scene from Les Miserables, but it's not. 12,000 French police officers are mobilized across France today amid protests after French President Emmanuel Macron defended his move to raise the national retirement age from 62 to 64. Some perspective here, even with that two-year increase. French retirees will still be younger than those in most other Western countries, including the United States, Germany, Italy, the United Kingdom, and Belgium. Uh, CNN's Melissa Bell's in Paris. Uh, she describes the scene and the smells as the strikes there show no signs of retiring themselves. More determined than ever, they set off. 
for a ninth official day of protest after a week of unplanned ones. The scuffles almost nightly ever since the French government announced it would raise the retirement age from 62 to 64 without a parliamentary vote. Et parce que je crois... The government narrowly surviving two no-confidence votes on Monday, La motion de censure pas but determined nonetheless. We will not tolerate any flare-ups. We will make sure that life is as normal as possible in spite of those who are blocking normal life. The very next morning, normal life blocked from Paris's Charles de Gaulle airport to the country's oil refineries and depots. Weeks of strikes becoming painfully obvious at gas stations and on the increasingly smelly streets of Paris. The numbers on the streets on Thursday also aimed at getting the government to buckle. Historically, French people are always protesting to have a good social system. This is why we have a good social system. A battle of wills neither side seems prepared to back down from. Jake, it was over a million people on the streets of France today. This is Opera in the centre of Paris where uh, the march uh, ended a short while ago. The police cars still lighted up. You can see the debris uh, littering the streets of Paris. The streets of Paris still full of that garbage I mentioned a moment ago. And as you said, there is no sign of this letting up. Despite the government's determination to continue, uh, French unions have announced that Tuesday will be the next big day of strike action and of marching. They are determined by the force of the streets, by the force of blockages uh, to bring the country to a state of paralysis and to force the government to sit down and negotiate with them. For the time being, what we've heard from the government, as you heard there, they're not planning to do that anytime soon. So over the course of the next few days and with the visit of the King of England on Monday, uh, we expect extraordinary scenes here in Paris, Jake. All right, Melissa Bell in Paris. Thank you so much. Up next on the front lines, what could soon be a major loss for Russia in its long drawn out war against the Ukrainian people? Stay with us. And we're back with our world lead, a top Ukrainian general insisting that Russia is losing steam in the battle for the key eastern city of Bakhmut. The general vowing a Ukrainian counteroffensive will start there, quote, very soon after months of grinding, punishing urban warfare. Further south, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky continues his tour of hotspots today, visiting the recently liberated city of Kherson on what Zelensky calls a mission to restore and rebuild. CNN's David McKenzie is live for us in Odessa, Ukraine. Uh, David, the World Bank estimates that the country's reconstruction uh, after the devastation caused by Russia is going to cost at least $400 billion. What would the top rebuilding priority be? Well, Jake, uh, the top rebuilding uh, priority is everything. You look at that number, 400-odd billion dollars, that's a billion, and a lot, at least 135 billion of that is direct damage from the relentless strikes of Russians, according to the World Bank. And, of course, that number goes up and up as this war drags on. You had that statement uh, coming from that senior commander in the Eastern Front that in Bakhmut and around that area, they have depleted forces significantly, the Russian forces, and he believes, at least, this is one man talking, uh, that there could be a possibility of a successful counteroffensive soon. 
Now that is up for debate. Certainly while we've been here, Jake, this time there is a sense that uh, there is frustration from leadership that they need the weapons in to try and make that counteroffensive happen. Jake? President Zelensky just said in a meeting with the European Council that victory, Ukrainian victory, is possible this year, but that there are key areas of cooperation that are inadequate. What does he mean by that? Well, we've heard President Zelensky going on and on about this, uh, Jake, that he needs more sophisticated weapons. He said specifically they're looking for longer range weapons, for more modern aircraft. They've had pledges from Slovakia even today uh, for those older MiG Soviet area attack craft. But he said he needs better weapons. Uh, He put it in an interesting way. He said it's not just months, it's weeks, it's days. And any delay that comes from their European partners uh, could mean, in his words, their enemy uh, getting the momentum. So I think it's a very critical period here in Ukraine. Those weapons from the US, from Europe, those artillery shells are coming in. It's not fast enough for the Ukrainians. Whether that's delay or lag or speed of which it's coming in has a direct impact on this possible counteroffensive. Well, it's too early to say, but you do feel they're gearing up for this fight. Jake? All right, David McKenzie in Odessa, Ukraine, thank you so much. Let's bring in Democratic Senator from Connecticut and member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, Senator Chris Murphy. Senator, yeah, you have applauded your Republican colleagues uh, when they came out and disagreed with Republican Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Uh, who said that um, the fight in Ukraine was a territorial dispute, not in America's vital interests. DeSantis um, gave another interview in which he declared Putin a war criminal uh, and said that Putin should be held accountable. What did you make of that? I think he's sort of listening to the criticism. I mean, his position is not a mainstream position in America today. Republicans and Democrats in my state still support Ukraine because they do believe there's a connection between fighting uh, the Russians and protecting uh, Ukrainian democracy and protecting our own democracy. So it could be that DeSantis realized he got way out of step with where the broad American electorate is and he's you know, trying to make up the difference. Um, the problem is that it's not just Ron DeSantis. It's not just Donald Trump. There's a growing number of Republicans in the House of Representatives who are saying the same things. And ultimately, at some point this year, we're going to have to authorize additional assistance, uh, especially if this offensive shows some signs of promise. Uh, and it's going to be a little bit harder this year with the DeSantis and Trump wing of the Republican Party being in control of the House to get that bipartisan support for Ukraine aid that we had in the last year. Let's talk about the, the two-day meeting this week between autocrats uh, Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping. Um, it, it's, it's clear that, wasn't, uh, that, that there's no uh, peace plan uh, that came out of that meeting, uh, even though no meaningful one anyway, even though there was talk of that. A peace plan for Russia and Ukraine. And it's also clear that wasn't really their focus. Uh, they really talked more about how they can help each other in other ways. Um, at the same time, I should note, uh, China continues to not promise publicly any lethal aid to Russia to defeat Ukraine. Um, what did you make of that? Well, I, listen, I think it's... Um It's a sign of the difficult spot China is in, right? It's very attractive to them to make Russia a client state of China, the reverse of how Mao and Stalin dealt with each other decades ago. 
Um, and so I'm sure there are those uh, inside Chinese government who are telling Xi you should give defensive weapons. It creates a 30-year dependency, um, Russia on China. But he knows the cost that would come if he was to provide the assistance that allowed Russia to make a breakthrough or if he was providing the assistance that prevented a diplomatic agreement from being achieved. It would be a fundamental break between the United States, Europe and China at a moment when China's economy couldn't withstand that. Right. Post covid lockdown. Um, the Chinese economy uh, is in more trouble than it's been before. They're not seeing 7-8% growth rates. And so he's got to be very careful to preserve his economic relationship with the United States, notwithstanding how attractive it might be for him uh, to make Russia wholly and completely dependent on Beijing for the next decade. Let's turn to another uh, policy area you're deeply invested in, um, having to do with guns. Uh, you and the youngest member of Congress, uh, Florida Democratic Congressman uh, Maxwell Frost, you, you, you introduced legislation uh, well, to establish an office of gun violence prevention in the Justice Department. Uh, your fellow Connecticut Senator Richard Blumenthal characterized this bill as a, quote, uphill battle. Um, why uh, is it an uphill battle? And do you think there's still a bipartisan appetite for gun violence prevention and reform measures after last summer's rare uh, gun safety package got passed? Well, listen, first of all, really excited to you know, be part of uh, Maxwell Frost's first bill introduction um, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. I was a young member of Congress, and so it's exciting to partner with him. Uh, he represents a new generation of anti-gun violence leaders that are going to be showing up at the Capitol and in Congress on increasing, an increasing pace. Um, listen, I don't think this bill is as heavy a lift as other proposals, because all we're asking is that there be a uh, an office, a clearinghouse for all anti-gun violence policy in the federal government. Um, but I get it. Um, Republicans engaged in a pretty um, heavy lift last year. The Bipartisan Safer Communities Act was the first time in 30 years that the Republican Party has broken from the NRA in any sizable numbers. There is a lack of enthusiasm from Republicans to go right back at it again in 2023. But I just think we have reached a paradigm shifting moment in this country where the NRA is in shambles, mm -hmm. the anti-gun violence movement is growing, and whether it's this bill or something else, this year or next year, I do believe we'll see more victories. Uh, quickly, if you could, I want to get your response to this tweet from the Michigan Republican Party uh, chair. Uh, it, she tweeted a, a photo of Holocaust victims' wedding rings uh, with text over it that reads, before they collected all these wedding rings, they collected all the guns. Uh, it's obviously cr uh, caused an outcry uh, by the Jewish community uh, in Michigan and elsewhere. Uh, what's your response? Yeah, it's disgusting. It's, you know, an example of a party that's lost its mooring. But it's also uh, sort of more evidence of this idea that Republicans really don't care if they lie because they're lying about their enemy and that justifies the lie. At the foundation of that tweet is a suggestion that there's a Democratic agenda to come confiscate weapons, right? That's made up out of thin air um, in order to scare people. And so the most offensive part of that communication is the association between background checks and the Holocaust. But what's just as offensive is the fact that these guys continue to just make up stuff about the Democratic agenda. And they seem to be OK with it because as long as they're making stuff up about Democrats, they can live with it and justify it. Yeah. All right. Democratic Senator Chris Murphy, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, uh, CNN goes one on one with the prime minister of Canada. The issues he says Canada and the U.S. need to challenge the Chinese government on and why. Stay with us.
In our world lead, America's neighbor to the north will welcome President Joe Biden just a couple hours from now. This is a brief 24-hour visit with a packed agenda that could include complicated discussion. CNN's chief White House correspondent Phil Mattingly is in Ottawa, the capital of Canada, where President Biden will land shortly. Phil, what is the main goal of President Biden's first presidential trip to Canada? You know, Jake, when you talk to U.S. officials, they make clear the primary goal is to elevate a relationship that has only grown in importance over the course of President Biden's top uh, first two years in office, particularly given some of the geopolitical challenges that the two countries face in unison in a unified manner. And that's Ukraine or that's China. Those are two areas where they have been very closely aligned. But over or underneath that is definitely some significant issues that they have to grapple with. Thorny bilateral issues. And the U.S. officials are also clear this is a very bilateral focused meeting where they will try to get into the details of those. The president will have drinks uh, with the prime minister and his wife tonight. Tomorrow will be a day of those bilateral meetings, followed by a speech uh, to uh, the parliament and then a press conference by the leaders. But the details of those thorny issues and whether or not they're able to make any headway on them, and they range from NORAD, which became very front of mind, obviously, during the Chinese spy balloon uh, issues that the U.S. and Canada were dealing with a few months back, the defense spending, where U.S. officials have made clear they want Canada to ramp up their efforts on immigration, on Haiti. There are no shortage of issues, Jake. One area where they do believe that they have reached an agreement on immigration, what the details of uh, that are, we'll see uh, in the day ahead, Jake. All right, Phil Mattingly in Canada for us. Thanks. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau will greet President Biden this evening, but he greeted someone else today first, CNN's Paula Newton. She sat down with Trudeau for a wide-ranging interview discussing immigration, the Russian regime, relations with Biden, and more. It's a U.S. exclusive. And Paula joins us now from Ottawa. Paula, you you spoke with Trudeau about China, specifically those suspected Chinese spy balloons. Yeah, I got to tell you, Jake, that's all anyone can talk about in this town and this country, for that matter, is Chinese interference and in so many forms, not just the balloons and, quite frankly, buoys that they found in the Arctic, but also a more insidious kind of Chinese surveillance. And that would involve interference into elections or even spying that is going on in this country. Some of it has implicated the Trudeau government itself. They deny that they had any knowledge of this. But again, these are thorny issues that, as Phil said, President Biden and the prime minister will be talking. About. I want you to listen now to what Justin Trudeau told me about having to try and balance that Chinese relationship. Listen. On China, we've seen balloons in the air over Canada. We've seen buoys in the Arctic. Um, what do you think are the Chinese motives in, in those issues specifically? And what do you hope to learn from the Chinese balloon now in U.S. hands? Well, I think one of the things we have to remember is China is the second largest economy in the world and continues to grow. Um, we are going to have to, in some circumstances, engage constructively with China, like we did uh, around the conference on biodiversity that we co-hosted with them in Montreal. There's issues around climate change that we should be working as a world together. There's other places where we're going to have to be stiff competition to China in terms of market access, in terms of investments in the global south. Uh, we need to be able to show uh, that uh, the West and democracies are there uh, to make those investments and there is competitive to China. But there are also areas in which we're going to have to directly challenge China, uh, whether it's on uh, human rights, uh, whether it's on uh, security behaviors, uh, whether it's on cyber attacks or or concerns like that. We are going to have to continue uh, to be wide-eyed and clear about the threat that China poses and wants to pose to the stability of our democracies. So, 
I really want to underscore uh, those words, the threat that China poses. Jake, that extends to TikTok. The prime minister has three kids, two teenagers. At this point, he is saying Canada banned uh, TikTok on government phones. They have government phones. His teenagers are now off TikTok, TikTok, and he is clear that it could still pose a surveillance risk. Jake. Mm. All right. Paula Newton in Ottawa. Thank you so much. Coming up, the frightening rise in near collisions between passenger planes acknowledged today as actually going up by the Secretary of Transportation. Stay with us. In our national lead today, a Michigan appeals court ruled that the parents of a school shooter can stand trial for involuntary manslaughter, essentially holding them accountable for their parenting decisions surrounding their son's actions. Jennifer and James Crumbly's son, Ethan, killed four students at Oxford High School in November 2021. Ethan Crumbly has since pleaded guilty. He could face life in prison without the possibility of parole. CNN's Gene Casares joins us now live. And Gene, what kind of evidence is there against the Crumbly parents? Well, I want to show you that because there is evidence that came out in the preliminary hearing. But this is such a huge decision today because the court is essentially saying this can proceed to trial, that the parents caused the mass shooting. Homicide is the charge. It's involuntary manslaughter. And some of the facts that they used to get to their decision was based on foreseeability, that the parents knew there were issues. They foreseeably could have known and should have known that their son could have done this. Let's look at one of this, because in March of 2021, Ethan started texting his mother about feelings he was having. And the justices say, quote, About one week later, Ethan Crumbly sent additional text messages to Jennifer, his mother, this time reflecting his belief that a demon was in the house, that it was throwing objects inside the house. Can you at least text me back? That was from Ethan. His mother did not text him back. She was, according to testimony, riding her horses at that time. So she didn't respond to him. And then the the justices went on to talk about, in this decision, a journal that Ethan kept. And they said he kept it in the bedroom. His parents knew he had the journal, but they admitted that the parents had never read the journal. But the justices say, quote, Every one of the 21 pages of written material had reference to plans to commit a school shooting. Ethan Crumbly wrote, quote, I will cause the biggest school shooting in Michigan's history and I will kill everyone I see. Quote, the first victim has to be a pretty girl with a future so she can suffer like me. And so this case at this point, the parents can appeal to the Supreme Court. That's where they appealed originally. And the, the Supreme Court of Michigan said we want the Pellet Court to look at this. But uh, another hearing will be in several weeks. As far as Ethan, he has to have a major hearing in May because he was a juvenile when he did this. And according to the United States Supreme Court precedent, you cannot sentence a juvenile to life in prison without the possibility of parole before you look at the mitigating and the aggravating factors. And the parents continue to plead not guilty to these charges. All right, a groundbreaking case. Gene Casares, thank you so much. Today, the Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, confirmed that you're not just hearing more about airline collisions. They're actually happening more frequently. Listen to what Buttigieg told senators today. In past years, uh, they've occurred at a rate of roughly once per month. Right now, they are this year occurring at a rate that is roughly double that. 
CNN's aviation correspondent Pete Montine is here now. And Pete, this is stunning and definitely not what passengers want to hear. Does the Federal Administra- Aviation Administration have a plan to stop these close calls, at least as much as they can? You know, since this FAA emergency safety summit that they had last week, it's been mostly memos and messages. They've laid out this plan to pilots, essentially reminding them to be more vigilant and step up their safety protocols after these runway incursions. We've seen six of them investigated by the NTSB so far this year. But they've also laid out this five-point plan for air traffic controllers to get more help. It all centers on more supervisor oversight and air traffic control towers, Also moving along the training backlog that was caused by the pandemic, the top union of air traffic controllers says that is so key here because air traffic control facilities are especially short-staffed, they say. They break this down like this, and the FAA has actually admitted to this, even causing some flight delays and cancellations. The staffing right now at a key facility in New York, it oversees the airspace of all three major metro airports, 54% is the staffing level there right now. It's 90% nationwide. So still a long way to go. And the FAA, as it goes through its reauthorization period in Congress, they'll of course be asking for for more money. But the FAA has actually admitted that if we go into the summer and airlines don't throttle back their schedules, we could see even more widespread delays and cancellations like we did last year. And Pete, yesterday there was just another mid-flight incident on a Southwest Airlines plane. Yeah, you know, it's a really incredible incident. A pilot who was a passenger on board this flight, Southwest Flight 6013, uh, actually was called into service, essentially brought up into the flight deck after one of the original pilots fell ill. Uh, Southwest Airlines says it thanks this pilot for doing this. This pilot was from a completely different airline. This was not a Southwest Airlines employee. And this was a pretty serious incident. I want you to listen now to the air traffic control audio between that flight crew and controllers as this flight turned back to Las Vegas. Uh, the captain became incapacitated while en route. He's in the back of the aircraft right now with the flight attendants, but we need to get him on an ambulance immediately. 737, thankfully, experts tell us, can be flown by one pilot if absolutely necessary. It's a pretty modern airplane, although two pilots are better. Of course, there's this push to make it so there's only one pilot flying a commercial airliner, and the top union of airline pilots simply points at things like this, saying two pilots are better than one. A money-saving issue uh, really comes down to saving lives when it's all said and done. Yeah, indeed. All right, Piemontine, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, the tap dancing today by the CEO of TikTok when asked just how much data his app collects that might be accessible by the Chinese government. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, a West Coast deluge. The 12th severe storm, known as an atmospheric river, is moving through parts of California. So does this mean no more drought now that the state is swamped with rain? Plus, Secretary of State Antony Blinken facing a subpoena threat as lawmakers order him to turn over documents related to the chaotic U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. In moments, I'm going to speak with the chairman of the House Committee leading that charge. And leading this hour, the CEO of TikTok, called before Congress, pressed on how much data from users the Chinese government can access. The CEO insisting TikTok is not doing anything that other social media companies are not also doing. Our coverage starts with CNN's Natasha Bertrand, who dove into today's high-stakes hearing for TikTok. Lawmakers grilling the CEO of TikTok today, accusing the social media company of spying on Americans for China. TikTok surveils us all. And the Chinese Communist Party is able to use this as a tool 
to manipulate America as a whole. Your platform should be banned. I expect today you'll say anything to avoid this outcome. The CEO, Sho Chu, rejecting claims that Beijing has any control over TikTok through its Chinese parent company ByteDance and insisting that Americans' data is now largely stored on U.S. soil. Do any ByteDance employees in China, including engineers, currently have access to U.S. data? Congressman, uh, I would appreciate this. This is a complex uh, topic. Today, all data yes, is stored yes by no. default. No, it's not that complex. Yes or no, do they have access to user data? We have, after Project Texas is the an, done, the answer is no. Project Texas is TikTok's name for its ongoing effort to move all U.S. data onto servers hosted by the American company Oracle, which is based in Texas. That defense, however, falling on deaf ears. I have seen no evidence that the Chinese government has access to that data. They have never asked us. We have not provided. I find that actually preposterous. I don't believe that it is technically possible to accomplish what TikTok says it will accomplish through Project Texas. Lawmakers provided no evidence that the Chinese government has used the app to surveil Americans, but they repeatedly pointed to an episode from last year when four TikTok employees, including two based in China, were fired after improperly accessing journalists' data. We do not condone the effort by certain former employees to access U.S. uh, TikTok user data in an attempt to identify the source of leaked confidential information. Even so, governments around the world are moving to ban the app, including the Biden administration, which now prohibits TikTok on federal devices. Secretary of State Antony Blinken calling for the app to, quote, be ended in a separate hearing on Thursday. Is it a threat to the United States security? Uh, I believe that it is, yes. And shouldn't a threat to United States security be banned? It should be ended one, uh, one way or another, and there are different ways of doing that. The chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee also hinting that the U.S. knows more about TikTok's risks than has been publicly revealed. One of the things that my legislation would do is require the intelligence community to declassify as much information as possible. So it's not don't just trust the government. So, Jake, the the CEO of TikTok clearly trying to convince lawmakers here that TikTok does not pose a national security threat to the United States because the parent company that owns TikTok, ByteDance, does not have a lot of control over the uh, use and where the U.S. data actually goes because that data is being stored on American servers in Texas, overseen by an American company. But the underlying theme of this entire hearing was lawmakers essentially telling him that they do not believe him. And I should note that TikTok issued a statement after this hearing saying that while Shu, the CEO, tried to answer lawmakers' questions, the hearing was dominated by, quote, political grants standing. Jake. Natasha Bertrand, thank you so much. Appreciate it. The Republican Commissioner of the FCC, Federal Communications Commission, Brendan Carr, joins me now. Uh, Thank you so much for being here. Always good to have you. So in order to ban the app from the United States, Congress or President Biden would need to prove TikTok is a national security threat. Did you see any hard evidence presented that, that it is? I think we have that evidence now. And I think this hearing really couldn't have gone any worse for TikTok. The number one job I think they had today was to try to establish some level of credibility, some level of trust. I think you saw on a bipartisan basis it wasn't there. But the evidence is clear. Look, they've been telling us that there's very limited, if any, data flows back to China. We have internal communications now showing, no, that's not true. Everything is seen in China. They have denied reports earlier on that they were using the app to illicitly surveil the location of Americans, calling the stories on reporting on that lacking journalistic rigor. They've had to come forward now and admit, yes, we were engaged in that conduct. The FBI and DOJ are investigating them for that conduct. And we have evidence that ahead of our most recent midterm elections, they allowed CCP state media to set up accounts without disclosing that affiliation and run divisive videos targeting U.S. politicians ahead of those midterms. So we're at a point now where we have the evidence that really didn't exist, at least publicly, 
two or three years ago when we last went down this path. And is there more? We heard the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, Mark Warner, talk about there's more, basically suggesting there's more than what we know already. We know it came out in in Natasha's uh, piece just now uh, about them accessing American journalists' uh, data, trying to find out who was leaking them information about TikTok. Um, is, is there a lot more stuff there that we don't know about? I think so. It almost seems every week a new drop comes out. In fact, just this week, Forbes reported that a TikTok employee reached out to them and identified a tool called nsa to go as the employee referred to it, that allows them to collect real-time information, including on U.S. users, to build what they called a digital dossier. And so I think the tide has been moving out here on TikTok for quite a while, but I think today's hearing shows that maybe the dam's about to break. It, it takes a while to get stuff done in Washington, so there's still some hurdles to actually getting a ban or a divestiture. But there's a chance here that this could actually move very quickly, given how poorly this hearing went. So the, the CEO of TikTok made the suggestion that they don't collect any more data than any other social media company, Facebook, Twitter, et cetera. And um, what, what do you think about that? I mean, th- those social media companies do collect a lot of information. Uh, I mean, they know who I am and what I like when I log on. There's always some you know, Philadelphia Eagles T-shirt they're trying to sell me or something. Yeah, look, there's some studies that have come out that showed, no, in fact, there's sort of more data, more vulnerabilities with TikTok. But we also have baseline level of concerns with all that data that you're mentioning that other social media companies hoover up. And we need to put some baseline privacy protections in place. But we can't kick the can down the road and wait to get that done when we have so much evidence on the clear and present immediate danger that TikTok. So let's deal with TikTok. And then, yeah, let's put some baseline protections in to get consumers for every social media application that they're on. So uh, earlier today at the hearing, Congressman Gary Palmer asked the CEO, uh, Mr. Chu, about this exchange I had with a TikTok executive uh, Michael uh, Beckerman. Um, here's that clip from the hearing. Yeah, I want to know why when Mr. Beckerman was on with Jake Tapper on CNN and asked repeatedly to condemn uh, Chinese, tre- Chinese communist tr- government's treatment of the Uyghurs, uh, when that treatment has been classified by the United States as a genocide, when a U.N. report classifies it as a crime against humanity, why, after multiple questions, Mr. Beckerman refused to address that? So the reason I had asked that was because I, I wanted to see how afraid they were of the Chinese government, given that they say that they're an independent company. Here is part of that exchange with Mr. Beckerman. Do you acknowledge that the Chinese government has these Uyghurs and others in concentration camps? Look, that's not something that I, that I focus on. What do you on mean that's not something you focus on? You work for a Chinese government company and the Chinese are accused of concentration camps and ethnic genocide. You can, you, can look, you can find all this content on TikTok. But why won't, you even, TikTok. why won't you acknowledge that? I mean, I, I, I can, I'm, just not, I'm just not an expert on what's happening in China, so it's not an area that I'm, I'm focusing on. And the reason Palmer cited that interview is because the idea is you work for TikTok and you're, you're under control of the Chinese government. Yeah, look, one of the points TikTok tries to maintain is that they are totally independent from the communist regime back in China. I think that exchange shows that that doesn't really seem to be the case. We have other evidence as well that show that there's employees that are double or triple hatted. They work for TikTok, they work for ByteDance, and they work for the CCP. In fact, there's CCP committees within these organizations. So I think that was one area of concern today where bipartisan Republicans and Democrats exposed some pretty serious weaknesses in their claim that there's a firewall between them and the Chinese government. In fact, the Chinese government recently came out and said, we would not support the sale or divestiture of TikTok, which is something the White House has come out and indicated that they're wanting. And again, if you claim to be independent from the CCP, but yet the CCP can veto the sale of the company, it kind of falls apart. And the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, um, again, the members of Congress tried to get TikTok to 
criticized the, the treatment of, of the Uyghur minority, Muslim minority, by the CCP, they wouldn't do it. That's right. Yeah, I think this is this very challenging. There was another report that came out just in the past week, 113 pages, that just detailed the controls and links that the CCP has. TikTok has said, look, don't worry about this Project Texas. It's going to minimize the risk. But I think the, uh, the testimony today showed that that plan has you know, more holes than Swiss cheese, and it really wouldn't block. In fact, I think really that was the key coming out of the hearing. Democrat ranking member Pallone said, I don't believe that your Project Texas mitigation measures uh, would actually prevent the CCP from having control. So that was one big thing out of this hearing. All right, FCC Commissioner Brendan Carr, always good to have you on. Thank you, sir. And join CNN's Abby Phillip tonight for a primetime special. Is time up? For TikTok, that's at 9 p.m. Eastern here on CNN. Coming up, I'm going to speak with the House Republican chairman threatening to subpoena Secretary of State Antony Blinken to find out exactly what he's asking for. Plus, oh, the shade from Kirsten Cinema. The senator, once a Democrat, now an independent, hear what she reportedly said about the Democrats who she used to caucus with and hang out with. Stay with us. I don't think people should protest this, no. And I, I think President Trump, if you talk to him, he doesn't believe that either. I mean, I think, I think the thing that you may misinterpret when, the, when President Trump talks, when someone says that they can protest, he would probably be referring to my tweet, educate people about what's going on. He's not talking in a harmful way. Golly, Speaker McCarthy always takes the bright side of things when it comes to Donald Trump and interpreting it. It's really quite remarkable. But I have to say, this morning, Donald Trump took to Truth Social to explain what he means about the protests he wants. Uh, he wrote in all caps on Truth Social, everybody knows I'm 100% innocent, including Bragg, the Manhattan DA, but he doesn't care. He is just carrying out the plans of the radical left lunatics. Our country is being destroyed as they tell us to be peaceful. I mean, all right, our panel's here. Heidi that really sounds like he is belittling the idea of protests being peaceful. Well, here's the bad news. We were all told six years ago that this type of behavior would escalate, and it has, because this is an open call for protest. It was actually, you could argue, a little bit different on January 6th, even though a lot of people thought that was direct call for protest. This is. Uh, and also, you know, even if there are not massive protests, it could, there can be a very small group of determined people who can really cause a lot of uh, danger and harm. At the same time, uh, it does seem that given that there have been such uh, significant consequences for a lot of those who did participate in January 6th, that a lot of his protesters are, are, who participated last time are saying, nah, you know, I'll take a pass. Uh, folks that you had on this network, for instance, were saying that there wasn't much activity to that extent uh, outside the courtroom on Tuesday when we all expected this to happen. Kevin, how did you interpret that? Our country is being destroyed as they tell us to be peaceful. It sounded to me, and I... I I showed it to a law enforcement officer who was there on January 6th, and he couldn't, he wasn't surprised, but again, shocked, and he, he considered it to be an incitement to violence. Right, and, and um, for me, it's not, I'm not surprised. I mean, if there's one thing that we've always known about Donald Trump is he just doesn't have the same concern for process, for rule of law, and he only has one speed, and the one speed is to attack anybody that he believes is a perceived threat, and that's exactly what he's doing here. And he's actually playing to the worst instincts of many of his supporters in the sense that he's trying not to make it about him, but he's saying, this is an affront towards you, and so you should rally to my defense and rally against this, this, um, you know, this miscarriage of justice against me. And so it, it's a huge concern, especially after what we know happened on January 6th. Yeah, and look, obviously everybody has a right to peacefully protest. But that sounds like he's belittling the idea of peacefully protesting. And also, he's lashing out against all of his perceived enemies on Truth Social today. He's attacking Ron DeSantis, 
Special Counsel Jack Smith, the New York Attorney General Letitia James, Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis, and uh, the Manhattan about the Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg. He writes, quote, he is doing the work of anarchists and the devil. He is doing the work of anarchists and the devil. Now, look, I like on one level, that's like, look how wacko this is getting. But on another level, if you convince your followers, many of whom believe in the devil, that this person is actually the devil, I mean, they might take action accordingly. I want to acknowledge where we are in a different place. First of all, he's doing all of this on Truth Social, which has a a far sort of lower reach, right, than Twitter and all the other sort of social media networks he was using before. We're not seeing protests in the streets, so I think people have learned from the hundreds of people who ended up under investigation due to January 6th that maybe you don't run out in the street when Donald Trump says so. And I think for us in the media, we've learned that this whole idea of him being saying something figuratively but not literally, all this kind of nonsense, it doesn't work anymore. He says what he means, we believe what he says, and we take it seriously in a far different way than maybe we did a few years ago. And so it sort of takes away the need to have all of this speculation about what he might mean. He means what he's saying. If he had his way, he would not like to see any of the people investigating him hold on to their jobs. And we know from his behavior during his term that he can easily take action to move people out of jobs that he doesn't want them in when they are investigating something he doesn't like. So on the one hand, yes, it is very outrageous. On the other hand, all of us have learned so much in the last four, five, six years. And maybe this means our entire system is sort of better prepared to handle it. He's also trying to weaken the people's belief in the government institutions, right? Like he's continuing to make these attacks on the Department of Justice, on all of these prosecutors, people who are either, you know, duly elected by voters or also appointed by someone. And so I don't think we should minimize what that is doing and how that is eroding our democracy as well. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in what this means for the FBI or law enforcement Mm -hmm. agencies. Mm -hmm. We watch what happened when the president, when the former president systematically denigrated the intelligence apparatus while he was in office, constantly sort of speaking ill of them. You know, there are a lot of Trump supporting Republicans, supporting people in these law enforcement agencies. I just wonder sometimes what they're feeling as he is constantly bringing his entire sort of like media circus down on them. Well, some of them showed up on January 6th and got arrested. That's true. There were members of law enforcement and former members, too. Let's turn to a story that's a little bit more fun. Uh, So Politico's Jonathan Martin uh, writes that independent Senator Kirsten Sinema of Arizona is courting Republican donors and in these meetings, she is, according to Jay Mart's reporting, ridiculing her former Democratic colleagues, describing their weekly caucus lunches as old dudes eating jello, with everyone talking about how great they are. Um, what, what, what do you, what do you, I mean, it is funny. What do you it, make it, of it? It's funny, but it's also scary because here's the reality. Democrats have an uphill battle when it comes to sen- maintaining this very small Senate majority in 2024. And to the point, like, Democrats in, in the Senate have kind of been playing nice with her. And yet here she is going to court the Republican Party by, you know, making all of these statements. And so it is really challenging and frustrating, especially as we see what's going to happen in Arizona, how she could potentially split. But I mean, old, old dudes eating jello, talking about how great they are. Is that wrong? Is that inaccurate? No, but there's a lot of Republican old dudes <laughs> exactly. that really like eat jello too. And by the way, there's a lot of private equity donor white old dudes who eat jello in that room that she was talking to and courting those donors. <laughs> right. My guess uh, is that you know, look, she's considering a couple of paths here, and both of them probably include Republican donors. <laughs> One, she runs again and tries to run as an independent and pull off some Republicans, but more likely, potentially, 
she's looking for a job outside mm-hmm. of the Senate because there's not really a good path there for her. If this is a three-way race, it, it would just help the Republicans elect whoever the Republican candidate is. And I think the writing was on the wall when she stood up and blocked the, uh, you know, closing the loophole for private equity, mm-hmm. um, t- having different tax rates, because those people are not her people. Mm-hmm. Those are not her constituents. But they are if she's looking for a job after the Senate. But in, yeah. the, in the story, uh, I think it, it's uh, Mitt Romney says that he theoretically would be willing to uh, campaign for her. Yeah. Um, Mark Kelly was on my show uh, last Sunday saying that he's worked great with her. I, I think people are still afraid of her well, of, uh, alienating her. I think the, the Washington read on this, which I tried to resist doing, was, OK, what's the strategy here? Try to parse out like some. You know, unique new strategy. I don't think there is one. I really don't. I mean, it's it, you, the, all the leverage that she had was going to be playing nice with with Democrats so that they maybe wouldn't put up another candidate and she could run as an independent and sort of thread the needle against uh, with independents and Democrats against a, a Republican in Arizona. I just don't see how that happens now. I think this emboldens all of her uh, critics and enemies. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think you can't have this kind of conversation in private anymore. Uh, maybe you could back when these were all young men eating jello, but we're not <laughs> in this period. So any strategy she might have had, it's playing out in public in real time right. with both her supporters and the people who are agitating for the Democrats to put someone up against her to make their move. And there's this other story in the political article, um, cinema telling the story to a group of Republican lobbyists about a reaction to a White House phone call. Quote, that was Klain, meaning the then White House Chief of Staff, Ron Klain, as she quickly flashed her middle finger in the air to demonstrate what she thinks of the powerful and now departed White House Chief of Staff. But again, Schumer is trying to keep cinema at least partly aligned with Democrats, uh, asked about this article, and Schumer praised her as a very effective legislator, which, by the way, we should know is true. She has really been a very successful legislator in terms of bringing coalitions together. I I mean, that's the hard part, right? We actually need her to pass some pieces of legislation. But at the same time, what we're talking about, what does this do in 2024? We want to get rid of her because at times she has stalled some big pieces of legislation for the president's agenda. And so I think you see Democrats trying to figure out, okay, how do we play nice so we can get these few things passed through Senate? But also we 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 all would like to get rid of her. All right. Thanks to one and all. And don't forget, if you look at your calendar, what day is it? It's Audie Cornish Thursday. That means you should check out the newest episode of Audie's podcast. This week, she helps make sense of the very confusing economic headlines from inflation and job numbers to the bank failures. The assignment with Audie Cornish available now from whence you get your podcasts. And happy Audie Cornish Thursday to you, as always. (laughs) Coming up, an emotional plea for answers and accountability for the chaotic U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. Stay with us. Some emotional opening remarks during the House Foreign Affairs Committee hearing today. Chairman Michael McCall, Republican of Texas, featured the mother-in-law of 23-year-old Marine Nicole Gee. She is one of the 13 U.S. service members killed in the 2021 Abbey Gate bombing uh, at Hamid Karzai International Airport during the chaotic U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. Take a listen. I'll never forget giving her a hug. And she said, I'm devastated to know, to know that this tragedy could have been prevented and my daughter could still be alive today. I am humble uh, in your presence. Um, I think of the 13. I think of the 2,402 Americans who lost their lives over 20 years in Afghanistan, serving and protecting our country. 
Let's bring in CNN's Kylie Atwood. And Kylie, uh, Chairman McCall also uh, warned the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, that he needed to hand over these key documents regarding the botched withdrawal or he would face a subpoena. What documents does the chairman want? Well, the committee has asked for a tremendous number of documents from the State Department for this investigation, but there are three sets of documents that they have made clear are their priority. The first are evacuation plans that the State Department drafted up for the embassy in Kabul so that the committee can see what kind of plans were underway to evacuate that embassy, how those plans change. Those plans were actually provided to the committee yesterday, along with about 3,000 documents, uh, I'm told, according to a source familiar. But then there's two other sets. There is the after-action report that the State Department did, looking at how it actually conducted the withdrawal from Afghanistan and lessons learned. The Secretary of State said that that report would be shared with the committee over the course of the next few weeks. That seemed uh, to make McCall satisfied. But then there's a third set of documents uh, that's really the key here. It is the holdout because it is a dissent cable that diplomats wrote to the Secretary of State before the U.S. withdrew from Afghanistan in 2021, saying that there were going to be a series of problems if they didn't take action sooner to get Afghans out of the country. And the Secretary of State says that he doesn't want to provide that document because this is a way for diplomats to confidentially express their concerns to the Secretary of State. He is happy, he said, to provide briefings on the document. He just doesn't want to provide this dissent cable. But that didn't seem to appease Congressman McCall, the chairman of the committee who is leading the investigation into this withdrawal, saying that he still plans to issue a subpoena for that document by Monday night if they don't actually get the document. So it is teeing up a legal battle between the State Department and this committee that is investigating this withdrawal. Jake. All right, Kylie Atwood at the State Department, thanks so much. And joining us now is the Republican chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Michael McCall. Also with us, Marine Sergeant Tyler Vargas Andrews, a 25-year-old active-duty Marine who was severely wounded at Kabul Airport's Abbey Gate bombing on August 26. 2021, where 13 U.S. service members were killed. Sergeant Vargas Andrews is now a, a double amputee. Um, Sergeant uh, Vargas Andrews, let me start with you. First of all, let me just say, I heard your testimony a few weeks ago, and um, I have a lot of reverence for what you do, and thank you for your service and the sacrifice you've made. Uh, it, it can't be easy, um, but there are a lot of Americans, I'm sure a lot of viewers right now, who appreciate what, what you've done more than you can ever possibly know. That means a lot, Jake. I really appreciate it. <clears throat> um, it's it's something that needs to be done, and uh, you know I have the ability to do it, so it is my responsibility to do so. Let me let me uh, roll some of your moving testimony from two weeks ago on Capitol Hill. My body was overwhelmed from the trauma of the blast. My abdomen had been ripped open. Every inch of my exposed body, except for my face, took ball bearings and shrapnel. The withdrawal. <clears throat> The withdrawal was a catastrophe, in my opinion, and there was an inexcusable lack of accountability and negligence. The 11 Marines, one sailor, <clears throat> and one soldier that were murdered that day have not been answered for. <clears throat> so you refer there to an inexcusable lack of accountability. What does accountability look like for you? <clears throat> for me, accountability looks like, um, you know, re- regardless of who's in what leadership roles, um, our military or our government, um, you know, that those people are responsible for, for the lives that they send overseas, um, you know, the, the lives that, that are lost, the lives that are impacted, and, I mean, mentally and physically, um, as well as the families. I think accountability looks like, you know, 
one, an answer for myself and the men and women that I served with as to why our rules of engagement were not clear, um, <clears throat> why we weren't given some of those answers in, in the situation that we're in in Afghanistan at Abbey Gate. Um, yeah, I would say those are the, those are the largest ones. Perfectly reasonable. Uh, Chairman McCall, um, today you vowed to get answers going, quote, all the way up the chain if you need to. Retired General Frank McKenzie, the commander who oversaw the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, has criticized both Trump and Biden for what occurred. Do you mean that far up the chain? Well, the rules of engagement go all the way up to the National Security Council. Uh, It appeared from the testimony there were no rules of engagement on the ground at HKIA, surrounded by the Taliban. HKIA is the the airport airport in in Kabul. And and I think most importantly, you know, Tyler saw the suicide bomber in his sights. He got his team together. He got the PSYOPs intelligence team. They identified him as the suicide bomber uh, through an intelligence bulletin and then ran it up to his commanding officer, who then replied, you don't have uh, permission to engage uh, because I don't have that authority. Well, and then they said, well, who has that authority? He couldn't answer that question. Yeah. So I want to go as far. I don't know how high this goes, but the idea he's not giving permission to engage. And then hours later, the bomb goes off. You have 13 servicemen and women killed, including we saw the mother of, of uh, you know, Nicole G. Um, 140 Afghans and 50 injured, including Tyler, who obviously doesn't have a leg, arm, has had almost 50 surgeries. Somebody's got to be held accountable. So, uh, Sergeant Vargas Andrews, um, you posted this picture uh, one year uh, after 13 of your fellow service members were killed in action, if we could put that picture up, um, visiting one of the graves. Have you been in touch with their families um, or the families of of other service members that you were there with? What what are you hearing from them? Yes, I have. Um, You know, I can't say that I keep an extremely close relationship with all of them. Um, but, you know, I talk to the ones that reach out and the ones that I can um, as much as I'm able to. Um, you know, I think it's, from what I've been told by multiple um, parents of the Killed in Action, uh, family, friends, is that, you know, there's a thank you for being that voice for their, you know, the ones that they lost. And for me, it's not a thanks that I ever need. Um, they they want answers more than I want answers. Um, and that's not to downplay how badly I want to advocate for, for the men and women that I served with, but, um, you know, there's, there's not many other people to turn to than, you know, Chairman McCall and, and those, of, those, of, those congressmen and women who have reached out to us. Yeah, no, you're serving in, a, obviously, in a critical role for these individuals. Um, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, General Mark Milley, testified before the House Appropriations Committee today. He declined mm-hmm. to, blame blase, to place blame on any one administration uh, he took a more holistic view, uh, saying that the, the, quote, strategic failure of Afghanistan was the culmination of decisions over 20 years. Um, what's your response to that? Well, I do think uh, there are a lot of bad decisions made throughout the 20 years. But the one decision that this president made was to evacuate. And the problem is he didn't really have a plan of evacuation. So when I got briefed by the Department of Defense, the intelligence community, It was a very grim picture. And then when I talked to the State Department, a complete lack of preparation. That's precisely why I want this dissenting cable that came from the embassy in Kabul. 23 State Department employees uh, registering dissent with the policy of the administration is a very extraordinary event. 
this is the one document, as it was reported, that they're not willing to turn over. Uh, I think the American people deserve to know what was in that. I think the veterans deserve to know what was in that and the Gold Star Mothers. And if it is not provided by Close of Business Monday, uh, I will serve that subpoena. So you're not actually a veteran. You're still an active duty uh, nice. uh, Marine. Um, uh, and I wonder if you're getting any pushback uh, for being as outspoken as you are. I hope you're not, but are you? No, I'm, I'm not. Um, <clears throat> honestly, I've had full support, um, you know, from, from the bottom of the Marine Corps to the top. Um, I can't say anything bad about, about that at all. I've, I've, they've helped me along the way, given me those outlets through the Pentagon to talk to and legal aid and assistance as well, um, knowing and expressing that they ha- I have, you know, I can speak about what happened to me and what happened to the men and women that I served with. I've never been told otherwise. So, All right, Marine Sergeant Tyler Vargas Andrews and Foreign Affairs Chairman Michael McCall. Thanks to both of you. I really appreciate your being here. I especially appreciate your being here. Thank, Thank you. you so much. My next guest has a rare perspective of the U.S. Supreme Court. She's covered it for nearly 30 years. What, or rather, whom she blames for its polarizing direction. That's next. In our politics lead, a new book out in a few weeks, here it is, is demystifying one of the least transparent institutions in the entire United States, the United States Supreme Court. CNN senior Supreme Court analyst Joan Biscupa gives us a look behind the scenes in her book, Nine Black Robes, Inside the Supreme Court's Drive to the Right and Its Historic Consequences. And Joan joins us now. She's covered the Supreme Court for nearly 30 years. And in fact, 22 years ago in a book, I called you the best Supreme Court reporter in the country. I know. That was 22 years ago. I know. And you've been doing it ever since. I know. And I appreciated that. And I will never forget it, too. I've always, but I've, I've, you know, it's just a fact. So you write how the Trump era reshaped the judiciary hard to argue with three new justices, uh, and also that it launched the court further into political polarization. Was there a specific moment or case when you, when you realized this was happening? I think I noticed it on two levels. First of all, think of the disdain that he showed for the judiciary right from the start. When he, Trump. Yes. Yeah. When he referred to Judge Curiel out in uh, California, who was hearing that uh, Trump University fraud case, he derided him as a Mexican judge. Yeah. And then he talked about an Obama judge to deride him on that. So he was, he was already bringing the judiciary down into the muck. But the thing that got me that I feel like I show here, Jake, is how Trump then changed the maneuvering behind the scenes. Chief Justice John Roberts, when he was in control up to 2020, when uh, Amy Coney Barrett came on, he would do as much as possible to avoid five, four splits along partisan lines just because he was aware of how Trump's effect was was tainting the public image of the judiciary. So it was it was happening on two fronts. And Chief Justice John Roberts no longer has that power because he's no longer a key swing vote in that era of avoiding any kind of real polarization behind the scenes at the Supreme Court is over. It's over. And you gave an in-depth look into the days after uh, the death of Justice uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg in yeah. September 2020, including how her office... Uh, was cleared out faster than normal. Was that symbolic of what was to come? I, I thought so. Here she, you know, she had just died after this, these struggles with cancer. After 27 years on the bench, her aides were grieving, and they get word that they have to clear out her chambers, move everything down to a dark, windowless, old theater space 
uh, in the building. This is still during COVID to sort through all her possessions there, you know, essentially tossed out. And I found that to be symbolic of what then quickly happened on much of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's legacy, notably reproductive rights. So, yeah, obviously one of the most consequential decisions from this current court was the overturn of Roe v. Wade, which Chief Justice John Roberts did not vote for. Um, But just a few months before that, Justice Samuel Alito's draft opinion was leaked. You made an interesting observation. You write, quote, the justices who joined Alito before the 98-page document became public never wavered after the leak. Perhaps they never wavered because of the disclosure. Do you think it's possible that the person who leaked it was a conservative who wanted to make sure that these people stuck with where they were at that moment? Well, I can tell you what the effect was. The effect was it locked in those votes. Once the 5-4 was out there with the leak, once the tone of that Alito opinion was out there, it made the chief's efforts at uh, compromise, negotiating between both sides, nearly impossible. I do wonder if he ever was going to make headway with someone like Brett Kavanaugh and Justice Amy Coney Barrett, but it became impossible just because everything was so public. So I know it looks then that it was a conservative who did it, but I still have no evidence of that. But I I don't know who did it, but I know the effect of it. Yeah, and you know who I think did it, but we'll talk about that (laughs) off camera. Joan Biskupic, thank you so much. Her new book is Nine Black Robes, Inside the Supreme Court's Drive to the Right and Its Historic Consequences. It comes out April 4th, but you can order it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or wherever right now, so please do so. Turning to our national lead, the Anti-Defamation League has published a frightening new report about the rise, again, in anti-Semitic attacks in the United States. Let's head over to the Situation Room, where Alex Marquardt is in for Wolf Blitzer. And Alex, you're going to dig into this report tonight. That's right, uh, Jake. We are a, a horrific and dramatic spike in anti-Semitic incidents all across the country. According to the Anti-Defamation League, they've been keeping track of these incidents since 1979. And in this new report, they say that last year, 2022, saw the highest number of anti-Semitic incidents since they started keeping track. Some 3,697, almost 3,700 anti-Semitic incidents compared to the year prior, 2021. That's almost 1,000 more or a 36 percent jump. So our colleague Brian Todd is going to be digging into this report. He spoke with the head of the ADL. Jake. All right. Thank you so much, Alex. We're going to see you in a few minutes for that important reporting. Severe does not begin to describe what California's drought has been like over the years. So has all this recent rain, this deluge helped? New numbers just came in. Stay with us. Internationally, a bit of welcome weather news in California as drought conditions in that state continue to improve for the fourth consecutive week. But there's a catch. As CNN's Stephanie Elam reports, drought conditions are only improving because of the terrible storm systems that have been pummeling the region since December. From relentless rain to suffocating snow and widespread flooding, even tornadoes and fierce hurricane-force winds, California's wet season has been anything but normal with at least 12 significant atmospheric river-fueled storms sweeping into the state since December, wiping out much of the oppressive multi-year drought. According to the latest U.S. Drought Monitor report, California's conditions improved for the fourth week in a row. More than a third of the state still falls in drought conditions, but compare that to December, when nearly all of the state was in some level of a water deficit, a dire situation that held for nearly two years. 
Since October 1st, parts of Northern California have measured 150 to 200 percent of their normal annual rainfall. On the first full day of spring, five daily rainfall records were broken in the Los Angeles area, including a downtown measurement that had stood for 130 years. In the Sierra Nevada mountains, the snowpack, California's frozen reservoir, continues to expand to unprecedented depths. The southern Sierra is approaching 300 percent of normal, marking a level never reached since formal record-keeping began in the 1950s. While many reservoirs that previously held just a fraction of their capacity are once again water abundant, officials say it's not enough to completely pull California out of drought. The only thing uh, which isn't going to recover this year will be groundwater levels because groundwater basins have been depleted due to many years of drought and that depletion is too large to refill in a single year, even if it's a very wet one. If people say to you, that they don't need to conserve water anymore in California. What do you say to them? Well, we have this little thing called climate change in which in most years we will have hotter and drier conditions. We expect in the relatively near term, say 2040 or so, Mother Nature will have cut our water supplies and in the 10 to 20 percent range, depending on where you're located. So despite all of this rain and snow... Scientists say climate change is demanding Californians rethink how we consume and conserve water. And Jake, I want to show you where I'm standing right now and what a difference a year makes because 13 months ago I was on your show to talk about how bad the drought was. I was standing down there. Now if you take a look at this river where I was standing, you can't even get to. All the plants that were growing there are now being overtaken by the water. And speaking of the plants, that's actually a concern because there has been so much water in California. This vegetation is going to grow all over the place. But then as the dry months get here, it's going to dry out. And that means we could be in for a very tough fire season this year, Jake. All right, Stephanie Elam in Los Angeles. Thank you so much. And our pop culture lead now, a behind-the-scenes look at when Jason Sudeikis and the rest of the cast from Ted Lasso visited the White House this week to discuss mental health. Part of the reason we're probably asked by the universe to go through hard things is so that we could tell the tale about it afterwards, make some positive come out of it. Join us for a special sit-down interview with Jason Sudeikis on a wide range of topics. CNN primetime, the Ted Lasso phenomenon. Jason Sudeikis one-on-one is tomorrow night at 9 p.m. Eastern, only on CNN. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. Tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead from whence you get your podcast. All two hours just sitting there like a delicious lemon meringue pie. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. 
It could be used on an upcoming episode.